So good to be together and great to see your smiling faces. And we have a little bit of sun creeping in. Um, have I told you the story of one time a guy came to church and he just sat in the back with sunglasses on in the summer and I was like, this is the only church I think you could do that. It's amazing. But um, yeah, happy Easter. Like I said earlier on, um, Easter really is a season in the church calendar that celebrates resurrection for about six weeks before we get to Pentecost. And uh, what a great time. Um, just to celebrate. And with that, with the new season and spring that's on the kind of here, not just on the horizon, but here, comes a couple things for us. One is a brand new practice that we're going to practice corporately as a church together. If you don't know, uh, we are a community that practices the way of Jesus together. We're really not just, we don't want to put a show on on Sunday morning. What we want to do is build disciples that follow Jesus in deep ways. And with that comes practicing. We believe that what Jesus calls us to, we actually go out and we do. Um, it's not just a mental ascent. Come on, brothers and sisters, you with me? Not just information. Information's great, but one of the things we're doing is, uh, Tom Brady, anybody? Anybody? We got the playbook on the sideline, and here we are coming around it, and we're going to go out in a bit and practice and play, put it in, play the game. With that is a brand new practice that is kind of new to us. We didn't do this last year, so the season of Lent was fasting. And so we took the season of Lent to fast. A number of you guys fasted with us, and it was just a great time fasting together in, in kind of anticipation and preparation for Easter. But now, resurrection has happened, and we step into a resurrection and Easter. So we're going to move from fasting to feasting. Come on, somebody. Man, you guys are a quiet bunch. Easter brings on feasting. And actually, one of the practices we don't talk a lot about as the church is eating together and hospitality and eating meals together. And so one of the things we're going to step into, and if you're fasting regularly once a week, do it, all right? Do it with us. Continue to do that. But even this week, I fast on Thursdays. I know Jesus says don't tell people when you fast, but just for illustration's sake. I fast on Thursdays, and I said, you know what? This week, no way. Resurrection's happened. I'm going to eat, and I pigged out. I think I went out for lunch. I forget what happened. But now we're moving into, and you can still fast, but now we're moving into a season of feasting and generosity. And so what we're going to do is we're going to eat meals together. We're really encouraging you, if you're part of the community here, to eat meals and community at least twice a month over the next eight weeks. For some of you, you're already, many of you actually, you're already doing this weekly, so you're already doing this. Um, for some of you, you may want to gather some friends together and join in with this and eat together. Probably what will happen, because this is the way Jesus works, you'll probably end up as a Praxis community. This is just what happens. You start eating together and building friendship. It's amazing. And then what we're calling everybody to do is to really think intentionally about eating with people outside of the church at least once a month over the next couple months. Open up your home your apartment, your condo, whatever you're rolling with right now, and invite your neighbors and your friends in to eat and join in with them in relationships. So we're going to feast. Come on, you with me? And this is a season, Easter is a season of feasting. As well, though, we want to encourage you to be generous over this time. God gave himself to the depths of going to death for us. How much more then could we give our lives for him? And so one of the things we're hoping is that every single week, we could just be generous with something, whether that's giving money away or giving stuff away or being intentional with that. We encourage you to practice the rhythm over this season of generosity. Okay? Make sense? 
do it. This is not a church thing. I don't really care. I mean, I care about praxis. You know what I'm saying? I care. But I, I, we care more about people building rhythms and disciplines in their lives that will build generous disciplines for you guys. Now, with that, we're not just going to call you guys to be generous. But what we're going to do as a community is in the month of May, um, here's what we're going to do. We talked about this last week, I know. But one of the things that we really commit to as a church community is simplicity. In everything we do, we want to be simple. We have a tiny budget of $7,000 a month to do everything that we do here, from kids stuff to rent to all of our, our experiences, everything we do for seven grand a month. What we're going to commit to do for the month of May is not spend that much. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to give $600 away right off the top of our monthly budget next month to, uh, what's it called? I'm... Ronald McDonald House, Meals for, from the Heart Campaign. Sorry, got a million things going on in my head. Meals from the Heart Campaign. We're just going to give 600 bucks right off the top to that to provide brunch and food and probably some gift cards and some really amazing stuff for those guys at Ronald McDonald House. So we're just committing to do that like right off the top. We're going to spend less next month, really tighten up to be able to do that out of our budget. And then what we're going to do is we have just really felt that once we reach our budget next month of seven grand, we're going to give anything above seven grand, we're going to give it away to local ministry and local outreach here in the city. And so whether that's 50 bucks or 500 bucks or $5,000, whatever comes in over what we need for budget next month, we have positioned ourselves. We're actually like putting meat behind what we've been talking about. We want to be simple around what we do so that we can be a community that gives on the outside. And so our, and by the way, this is not a ploy to get budget, but you're somebody like, I know what you're doing. You're trying to get, we, God has been so good to us and you guys have been amazing over these first few months of turning into praxis. There is no gimmick or ploy to reach budget. We've been doing great. We've just been feeling, we don't want to hoard stuff. We actually want to who would have thought the Jesus community actually give it away? Are you with me? And so we're really hoping that next month will be a great time as we kind of do that together. So we're going to feast and we're going to be generous and resurrection does something within us in a really beautiful way. So with that, we're going to step into a new practice and as well, for these months leading up into the summer, we're going to take about eight or ten weeks and we're going to start a brand new teaching series on the letter of Ephesians. So with that, if you have a Bible, who would have thought we'd ever say this? Why don't you fire it on? <laughs> My grandpa would be rolling over in his grave right now thinking that I'd be telling people to fire their Bibles on. But anyways, it's all good. Or if you're paper people like myself, you can open it up to Ephesians chapter 1. You already know this. We are living in unprecedented times. Technology is mind-bending. It's mind-blowing. And with that comes, I think, some beautiful things. Obviously, you know, there's an underbelly to technology. There's some real evils around technology, um, even digital addiction. I'll just say this. If you want a job in like 10 years, you should go into therapy for digital addiction because it's a thing. It's a real thing. So there's an underbelly to it for sure. But there's something beautiful when the Jesus community takes technology and uses it for good. And so we don't have time this morning, but I do encourage you this afternoon, we're going to send out from our social outlets, social media outlets, a quick video that the guys from the Bible Project did on the book of Ephesians. These guys are amazing. They make like cartoon-like overviews of each book of the Bible. And so what we're going to do is we'll send that out. If you take eight minutes over this week to engage that, 
it'll be super helpful in just giving you guys an overview of the entire letter and what's happening with Ephesians. And we encourage you to do that. As well, I think we have some recommended reading as well, just a part of this, um, that we will post for you guys as well to help you if you want to go into like kind of deeper study with us as we walk through this over the next eight or ten weeks. Really recommend, if you want, to engage a book called A New Humanity by one of my college professors. His name is Luch Lombardi. He's done a really, I think, great job to make theology accessible and readable for us. And he does a fantastic job around this idea of the letter of Ephesians. There's another commentary there, the Story of God commentary, which is like, again, trying to find stuff for you guys that's, and for us, all of us, that's readable and engageable. And of course, if you want a more devotional book, just read The Huge Huge. Anybody with me? Any Eugene Peterson fans? I'm the only one in the room that is a Eugene Peterson fan. Okay. You should read, read Eugene Peterson, and he does a little devotional book that is really fantastic. Now, some of you, if you're a theology people, you're thinking, oh, like, what about this commentary in this book? Guys, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of adequate, really good resources on Ephesians. We're giving you three, okay? So take it, leave it, do stuff on your own if you want to engage on a deeper level. That's good. But this is how the letter opens. Paul says this. He says, from Paul... One of King Jesus' apostles through God's purpose to the holy ones in Ephesus who are also loyal believers in King Jesus. He says this, May God our Father and the Lord Jesus, the King, give you grace and peace. Let's take a couple minutes and just look at the opening verses to this beautiful letter that's been compiled. First of all, it's from Paul, from Paul. Now, here's the thing. A lot of you may find it surprising that this isn't necessarily unanimous amongst scholarship that the author of Ephesians is the guy that we know as the Apostle Paul. Now, it was for centuries, but some scholars have pointed to some things that are unique to Ephesians that are different than Paul's other letters. In other letters, if you know, if you read through like the Apostle Paul, in other letters, he's very specific. Have you read like Corinthians where he talks about a guy sleeping with his stepmom? <laughs> That's a bad day. Anybody with me? And he like names people, right? And you see this in a lot of his other letters. But Ephesians is a very general letter. It's not as local as Paul's other letters. And one of the things that's got some scholars thinking is that maybe Ephesians wasn't written by this guy that we know, the Apostle Paul. But you're thinking, it says right here, it says, it says it's from Paul. Well, most of the manuscripts that we have uh, from the past, that's true. But most of you guys know, if you've been around for a while, that authorship around ancient texts was a little different in the ancient world. So today we have a strong interest in intellectual property. You with me? So if you write something today in the, in the 21st century, that typically is bound to you legally. This is why even when, with our writing and teaching, we are very, I'm trying to be very articulate in where, if we're sourcing something, where it's coming from. So I'm, I'm almost over careful when I write because I know that there's a world out there of ideas. But in the ancient world, it wasn't like this. In the ancient world... It, was, it wasn't uncommon for a disciple or a teacher of somebody 
to put the name of the teacher on the letter or the document. And so in the ancient world, it was actually more about authority over a text or something that was written than it was authorship. So even for things like Matthew, we believe Matthew was probably the authority over the Gospel of Matthew, but there were probably scribes and editors and people that would come around to make it really pretty in Greek that would eventually be translated into English. You hanging with me? So some scholars think Ephesians may not be in the realm of Paul, the Apostle Paul's writing. We're not entirely sure. Now, either way, is it authoritative? Absolutely. I don't think we should lose ourselves on this, but I do think it's important as a thorough and thoughtful community to make you aware once in a while that scholarship doesn't always hold the consensus with stuff. And without fail, I know what would happen is if I were to say this was written by the Apostle Paul, one of you would probably say, I read a book or I watched a YouTube lecture and the guy there said or the gal there said that they're not sure if it's unanimous that Paul is actually, the Apostle Paul is the writer of this. So here's the thing. Our faith shouldn't crumble at this at all. The fact is, because of how old these documents are, some of you have never thought through this. You just kind of read it, and that's great. Some of, because of some how, how old some of this stuff is, sometimes dates and authorship is contended. And so just I think it's important for our community, just in case you hear, hear somebody say otherwise, that it wouldn't freak you out because some of you are engaging this stuff. Now, you want to ask me what I think? You want to get going on? Yeah, yeah, not that you care about my opinion. I think it was probably the Apostle Paul. I think, I actually really do think it was probably, he's not only the authority over this, I think he has his fingerprints on it. I get some of the debate because it's so different than Colossians and Romans and Corinthians for sure because he's like naming specific things in local places. But there's a number of reasons, I'm not going to digress here, but I think one of the reasons is there's a guy named Tychicus in the letter and he's actually named as the one who would be the messenger for it and I think it lines lines up with him taking Ephesians and Colossians to where they needed to go. Remember, there's no internet. Like, there wasn't internet. Like, I was trying to explain to my kids, there wasn't something called, there wasn't Netflix, like, 15 years ago, and they could not, like, wrap their mind around the world that we used to live in. And so I think it's just important in all of this to remind ourselves that we're reading someone's mail here. Paul, this is what I think actually happened. This is just my opinion. I think, and I, with, other scholars like Lu, with other scholars like Luch and others, that Paul is probably either in Caesarea Palestine or he's under house arrest in Rome, the Apostle Paul, and he writes this letter to the church in Colossae. And he writes it because there's all sorts of debate in the city of Colossae around whether Jesus is divine or not and Jesus is the Son of God. And so if you read that letter, Paul is very clear in writing the church in Colossae that this is, this is how we rule. This is our theology. And while he's waiting for the letter for, I think this guy's name, Tychicus or whatever his name is, is to come and to take that letter to the church in Colossae, he also writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. Luch puts it this way. He says this. Ephesians is the final expression of Paul's thoughts on God, Jesus, humanity, the world, faith, community, and the battle against evil. I actually agree with this. I think Paul was writing specific churches, and Ephesus was this letter that was kind of like Paul's ride into the sunset. 
He, at the end of his writing and and really at the end of his life of guiding and leading these churches, is now going to present just really a distinct view at the end of it all, a distinct view of God and his kingdom. N.T. Wright would pick up on this and he'd say, this letter is all about Paul in the end kind of writing about heaven and earth coming back together. It's a, it's a letter in which Paul brings these two worlds back together. So I don't really care where we all land on authorship, but I do think there is, there's some meat here around this idea that this is one of Paul's last goes at giving the churches uh, some credible guiding and leading. You gotta remember, they have nothing. They have themselves and the spirit, obviously, but these letters were simply letters that they would read in house churches that would help lead and guide them. And imagine, we have trouble figuring out how to follow Jesus now, thousands of years later, with all sorts of stuff at our disposal. Imagine being a first century Christian in that world, coming to Brother Bob's house, right, for the Lord's Supper, and really what you have to hold on to as far as instruction is these letters from this apostle. And so one of the things we even see with Ephesians is... Other scholars have argued that maybe even the, le- the, the city in Ephesus may not have even been sketched in in the early on uh, writings of the letter because it was so general. Some people think that this could be a letter that could have, been, could have been, yes, we have Ephesians on it, but it could have been sent anywhere. So Paul from Tarshish. Paul was Jewish, if you know. He had Roman citizenship. And he spoke Koine Greek, which was the street language of the day. This crazy culmination of things that led Paul to really be this voice in the church. And he was a religious Pharisee. One of the pictures we actually get in the Gospels is he was an understudy of this guy named Gamaliel, who was, hands down, the most brilliant and respected teacher of Jewish law. So you got to understand, Paul not only spoke Greek, he had the greatest education and mentorship in the Jewish law that anybody had had in history. Neil Kolb calls Paul a third culture kid because he wasn't just Jewish and he wasn't just, didn't just hold Roman citizenship, but he, he had a culture, a third culture where both of those things kind of came together. The first mention of Paul we get is in Acts chapter 7. If you don't know, the book of Acts is a really a biography of the church and what God is doing after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we get a picture first of Paul in Acts chapter 7. And there's this guy named Stephen. I don't know if you know the story. He's being stoned. And we're not like, we're not talking London, Ontario stoned. I know it's legal now, right? But we're talking like, that's funny, right? No, come on. Um, we're talking like, it's legal. No, no um, uh, it's, um, you know, we're talking like rocks at your head. And so this group of religious people in the temple, in and around the temple, Stephen is speaking now the goodness of God and this Jesus who's been resurrected from the dead. And obviously the religious people around the temple don't like that. They start stoning him. And the first picture we get of this guy named the Apostle Paul is this. In English, it's probably best put like this. Paul was ravaging the church. Actually, the imagery we get in Greek is that Paul like a wild animal, is devouring the church. He's destroying them. He's the guy that's rallying everybody up against this early movement in the Jesus way. And if you know, you couple, if you flip a couple chapters later, in Acts 9, Paul has this radical conversion. He's on his way to Damascus, and God meets him and changes him in an instant. 
And we know the story goes, he actually begins to preach, if you read in Acts 9, he begins to preach in Damascus and in Jerusalem. And it's so funny, he was ravaging the church so hard that he came back to the disciples saying, no, no, I've actually been converted to the Jesus way. And they're like, no. And you understand why. What would you do on the other side of the door with the murderer, this religious zealot, wanting in now? You'd be like, okay, you know, we know the table is open here, but not today. You with me? Like this, they're freaking out. Then it turns where the disciples kind of start to soften themselves to Paul, and everybody else gets mad with him because he's turned from this religious Jewish zealot trying to keep the law and Torah and the temple clean and pure away from these Jesus followers who were saying Jesus is the risen one. And now he's brought into the church, and now everybody on the outside is mad at him, so much so that they have to send him to Tarshish. And I know we read in the book of Acts like a couple verses, and we think, well, it was a day or two. Scholars think he probably went to Tarshish for 13 or 14 years to make tents, lived remotely, had this conversion, and went in quietness away to Tarshish for 13 or 14 years before he started his first missionary journey. So I think this is Paul, from Paul. Well, let's pause for a second. Think about in your mind's eye that person. You know that person, the coworker, the fellow student, maybe the family member that seems so anti the way of Jesus. Got them in your head? Like I just think of people all around, like even in my own world, they, you know, I have friends, they know what I do, but when it comes to their posture to the king and the kingdom, it's pretty hostile. Think of that person. This is who God uses. It's so freaking upside down. Like, the more you engage this stuff, you just realize just how it's tipped on its head. The person that's the farthest and like a wild animal is the one, honestly, that became the greatest missionary ever in the course of human history. No one, no one is out of reach. And let let that just be a reminder to us. Like, we have people, and we're obviously in a post-Christian world, and probably you live in a world where the people you spend the most time with aren't followers of Jesus, think of those people. No one is out of reach here. From Paul. Then, to the holy ones. Interesting. To the holy ones. This is a translation that I'm using. It's called the kingdom translation. I think it it interprets this really well in verse one. From Paul to the holy ones. Or in my translation here, it says the loyal believers. This letter is from Paul to the loyal believers. Now, here's the thing. This is not to Caesar. This is not to the Roman Senate. And this is not to Bob or Sally, average Roman citizens in the Roman Empire that don't follow Jesus. This is to who? The church. Can I say it again, brothers and sisters? From Paul to the holy ones, the church, the ones who are set apart, the loyal believers in Jesus and his kingdom. This is to the Christians in Ephesus and now thousands of years later, wherever we live and stand. And guys, it is so important that we catch this. Not once in the scriptures are they written to people who are not following God. Can I say it again? The scriptures and what you read from Genesis to Revelation is not for people who don't follow God. I grow, probably like you, I grow a little weary of the insider, outsider kind of language. 
you know, those who are in or the us and them kind of language, but it must be said here that the Bible and what we get now is for Christians. What we read in Ephesians is for Christians. It's instruction for Christians. And I'm telling you guys, and you know this, the church gets in a heck of a lot of trouble when it wants to be the moral police for culture. Is anybody out there? Like, when it wants to get people who don't follow Jesus to live under the kingdom ethic, this is where it goes all wrong. It's, first of all, it's just silly. And now we know in the moment that we live, it just doesn't work. Paul, and specifically, Paul's letters are to communities of people that follow, follow Jesus. This is for us. If you're a follower of Jesus and the spirit lives within you, this is not some sort of thing that we push on other people. It goes drastically wrong. It's to the holy ones, the, holy, the loyal believers, as Paul would say. Now, I'll also say this. Not only is it for Christians, but this is actually meant to be read engaged, and practiced in community together. Though this letter, what we read here, is meant to be done together in this setting and beyond, around dinner tables and so on and so forth, in living rooms, around living rooms. It's amazing. I just want to say this. The phenomenon, and we don't often think about this, the phenomenon of having your own Bible, just to remind you, is new. Did you know this? Sometimes we don't, th- like we have immediate access. I read everything on iPad and I'm on a screen now pretty well. Sometimes we forget that the idea of having your own kind of devotional Bible reading life is like new to the last 500 years or so through this thing called the printing press. If you were a Christian in the first century, you had to do it with the loyal believers. You had to. Uh, you would go to synagogue and we read, even when Jesus goes to synagogue, he would read bits and pieces of the scroll like from Isaiah. But just the fact that we have all this access in our hands, on our phones to the Bible, we need to be reminded that it's not an individual thing, it's a communal thing. Christians always read the scriptures together. And I'm thankful that tomorrow morning, after a long weekend, I will wake up to screaming kids, anybody with me? And I will put on my French press and I will press it, and I will pour it into a cup, and for a few minutes, I will get a moment to read the scriptures on my own. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. I'm not, there's nothing against that. But this is a new luxury for us in the modern world. Christians did this together. And it's all over the letter of Ephesians. We're going to look at it, but it's all about withness, with God, and then with brothers and sisters. You know, Paul uses 10 different words that begin with the same version of the Greek word son, which means with. It's laced all through the letters. Here it is. God made us alive with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5. God raised us with, together with Christ. We are citizens together with the saints. Chapter 2. We are joined together with the other parts of God's building. Again, chapter 2. We are being built together with other parts of God's building. It goes on. We are heirs together with Israel. We are members together with each other in the body. We are shares together with each other in the promise. We are joined together with each other in Christ's body. We are held together with each other in Christ's body. You picking up what I'm putting down? Paul is all about this being done in community. And so we really encourage you not just to do this alone. 
we really I would encourage you to get in a Praxis community. One of the things we're hoping is that we would read this letter. It, if anything, maybe there's not a ton of time in some of the groups to have a ton of commentary, but at least over the next eight to 10 weeks, read the letter together. We're gonna provide some questions each week on the teaching site that can help cultivate this, but we really encourage the chairs and the community to turn into each other because this is not to Brother Bob or Brother Sally on their own. This is to the loyal believers, to the holy ones, to those who are set apart. So from Paul to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesus. Now I'll say this. Again, some people think maybe that you could put any name of the church, of any distinct location into this, and it would be suitable. But in our transcripts, we have Ephesus. And one of the thoughts is, is that this letter would have been circulated to the Christians, the Christian house churches, maybe two or three, we don't know, in Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. I mean, this is crazy, 250,000 people in the first century. It's massive, global city. It was easily the most influential city in Asia. It was a harbor city where there was a ton of trade. So cities typically grew, as with American cities and Canadian cities for the most part, on a harbor or a piece of water where much trade was happening and commerce was happening. People would come from all over the world to visit this beautiful, great city, Ephesus. And some of you, anybody taken a Mediterranean cruise and seen Ephesus? We're all a little too young for that. I think some of our parents and in-laws maybe have done that. You know, this is something we have to look forward to and like, come on, anybody with me? Maybe we should do one when we get older together. You want to do it? Let's do it. Mediterranean cruise. Praxis. Da, 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 da. Spence could do the entertainment. It'd be good. I'll do it right there. Um, you know, one of the reasons why people would come is because the empirical cult worship was the heart of what happened in the city. There were two temples in the city erected in honor of the Roman Emperor Augustus, who we know from the Jesus story, Domitian, who was, if you read the Caesars, was a psychopath, named Ephesus guardian of the empirical cult. This was the center of emperor worship. I don't know if you remember, but they worshiped their emperors as God, right? With people believing in the, this famous line that Caesar was Lord, and the Jesus community has a lot to say to that and throwing down on that. But they literally worship their Caesars in this community. Actually, one of the libraries in Ephesus is said to say this. On it, it says, Caesar is never wrong. I got thinking, imagine like Justin Trudeau is never wrong. Imagine having that on an art of like a place of, that'd be just awesome. I don't think it's going to happen, but just saying. And this community, this community, this city was built on magic and these practices of magic, you even read it in Acts 19. But not just emperor worship. If you remember from past teachings, because you're so studious, the center of the city revolved around this goddess. Her name was Artemis. Artemis, the temple of Artemis, was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. People worshipped, they would come and they would worship from all, like, it's like Niagara Falls, but it's a temple to this goddess named Artemis. They would come from everywhere. It was a huge structure, 60 to 70 feet high and the size of a soccer field in scope. And you know, if you've been in past teachings, the way that they worshipped is prostitution was legalized where people would come and they would sleep as their act of worship to Artemis. They would sleep with temple prostitutes. 
Now do you understand why Paul would say, like, give, your, give yourselves as living sacrifices to God? Think about the world that they're living. The way you worship was not just like, I love you, I love you, G. Like, it was literally engaging in prostitution. This was the worship of the day. In the courts of the Temple of Artemis, common criminals were put on trial. It was a place of trade. And if you read in Acts 19, go read it. We read it a couple weeks ago. The whole city flips on its head as soon as Paul comes in with the Jesus story because people were losing their livelihood because they were li- it was like, like going to a hockey game with artifacts or going to Disney World where they would buy these engraven images of Artemis and that began to crumble. And so this is a city that I think... God loves. There's a lot of bad stuff going on. And I'll just say for our own city, I know this isn't the whole point of verses one and two, but God loves our city. All the evil that we see around us, all the sin, sometimes the really gnarly things that we see in our own context. God loves a city. I think the city is strategic. I think we're here where we are for a reason, and it's strategic. God, cities are where people are. And God loves people. People may not be following Jesus. They may not have his spirit within them, but we are all image bearers of this divine God, Yahweh. And he loves us and he looks down and he loves his people. So it's from Paul to the holy ones, to the church in Ephesus. And then it says this, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus the King. Now here, guys, is in verse two, is where the, the center stage, the center, the central role begins to appear. In the first couple of verses, we're introduced to key players like Paul and the loyal believers, and yes, Ephesus is there, but the main character of the story enters right here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, working in unity as one God. You notice here, Paul, Paul uses Roman language as he talks about Lord, and he uses Jewish language here to speak of the triune God. This is what this, this whole letter is about God interworking in these people in the city. This is all about Jesus, all about his kingdom, all about him. And then he says, so Paul says, may, uh, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus the King, and then he says this, give you grace and peace. May the King give you loyal believers grace and and peace. This is kind of crazy because this is actually, if you read all of Paul's letters, and we have a lot of them, this is how he started every single one of his letters. Grace and peace. Paul was all about grace and peace. What's funny is this whole word grace, I think some of you guys know, in the actual language, in the Greek language, is this word charis. Some of you probably have nieces and nephews. It's a popular name, becoming popular. But it's funny, in the standard greeting, if you were to write a letter in the ancient world, you would open it up with actually a different word. You would use the word sharein, which means greeting or rejoice. So in a normal context, you'd use this word sharein, and then you'd write your letter. But Paul, he actually uses this word charis to get you and I to take notice. If you were reading in the first century, oh, you would, what? Instead of greeting, grace. Charis. Now, most of us, when we think of grace, what do we think of? We think of God's unmerited favor, which I agree, but I think there's so many more layers to it. 
So much, so, much, so much so that I don't even think we have time this morning to get to the depths of what this word means. Here's one shot. Here's a theologian. I'm not going to try and say his name because I'll butcher it, but this is what he says. His first name is Spiros, which is, there's a great baby name if you need one right there. He says this, grace, that which causes joy and pleasure and gratification, favor and acceptance, a favor one without any ex- exception of return the absolutely free expression of the love of God, finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. I love that. Bounty and benevolence of the giver. Unearned, he says, an unmerited favor. Grace to you, Paul starts out with. Then he says, peace, which is obviously this translation in Greek of the Hebrew word shalom, And peace is not just an absence of conflict or war. Oftentimes in the West, we just think, you're at peace when you're not at war with somebody. But in the Hebrew, the depth of this word is way better than that. Shalom or peace is rightness and order even in the midst of chaos. And this shalom, this peace in the midst of chaos, only comes in relationship with God. This runs all throughout the letter. Paul To Paul, grace and peace are the major themes that are central to the gospel. He actually uses these words in in tandem a bit 18 times in the rest of the letter. I think throughout the whole letter, he uses grace and peace. He mentions it 18 times. Brothers and sisters, may this great God give you grace and peace. What a way to start. And here's the thing. God is the giver. He's the great giver. So what's our, what's our posture? What's our position as we open this up? Well, who are we? We are the ones that receive. This is what the Christian life is about. As we enter into this letter over the next number of weeks, one of the things we have to come to is this posture of reception. My question for us would be, are you open to receiving this grace and this peace? Am I, am I open to receiving the grace and peace of Jesus? Because Paul knows that this is something that God wants, through Jesus wants, to pour out on us. But is our, are our lives open and postured to receive it? Am I open to receiving it? Um, Margaret Avidson, she puts it like this, and we'll close with this. She says, as we come to this letter, and she, she's talking in general terms here, but when we think about this letter in Ephesians, she says this, anyone who reads this book risks forever any belonging that he thought defined himself. Anyone who reads this book risks forever any belonging that he thought defined himself. And this, my friends, is what we're stepping into as we step into this. You may have all sorts of things over your life that define you, But what's going to happen over the next number of weeks as we look at Jesus in the face of these writings is he is going to redefine who we are as humans. He's going to talk and Paul is going to talk about us being this new humanity, this people that has been brought from death to life, this community that's been adopted. And there may be things that define us right now, but I think as we come from this, there's going to be a redefinition in our lives. And my prayer as we start this is that as disciples, you and I would receive the grace and peace of Jesus. Can we just say that grace and peace? Grace and peace. And may we, 
as we come to the table in this moment, receive God's grace and peace. As we, in a second, stand up and with our lives, even if you don't feel like it, move towards the bread and cup as signs and symbols of what God has done for us. May we receive this grace and peace. You with me?